is Rock and Roll Grad School with your TAs, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Hello, kitties. We're going to have a good time together. And I feel like, if I may, Heidi. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think we should say a special hello to uh, listener Paul and Chris and thank them for joining us on this uh, journey of ridiculousness. Agreed. Yes. At some point, we should probably throw out a Guten Tag Kitties to uh, German Rachel, but Rachel. I don't. Yes. I don't think we should do that today. No, we can do that at a later date. She knows we know she's listening, and we yeah, appreciate she gets it. it. So let's let's talk about our guest today, Dr. Pascal Bocar. Am I saying it right? Yes, I believe so. We probably should have checked that before. But yes, I believe that is correct. Who needs pre-show work? <laughs> Way overrated. Exactly. But Pascal's fascinating. And I think... Oh my gosh. I think as yeah. soon as you start hearing him talk, you go, oh yeah, he's a college professor. Yes. He is clearly way smarter than us yeah he puts the grad school in rock and roll grad school he really does we put the mm in rock and roll grad school <laughs> and he puts the grad school out about the role yeah sure rock's <laughs> overrated it is everybody wants to put the rock but pascal his research on the the history of jazz and blues sort of these very two american or, or presumably american right uh cultural artifacts or, or foundations pascal says eh, not so much or hold up a right. second before we start building houses and statues to people um a bunch of really cool information fun facts about the banjo which i think like we, really cool facts. yeah yeah so i i think he's he's enjoyable and i think uh i think you'll learn something you'll definitely learn something and i think his interview is one for the true music lover, true music connoisseur, and the foundation of what he shares leads into so much else you're going to hear on the show. Exactly. So it's a, it's a good thing that everyone should experience. Exactly. So the other thing I texted you about um, to remind myself to tell you was the Buddy Holly story. Yes. Not I the tell. film. No, and uh, yes. <clears throat> so, uh, <laughs> So the oldest is at the School of Rock taking in the Weezer band playing. Yes. And obviously one of the songs is Buddy Holly. Absolutely. And so Weezer has become a frequent play around the house. You get in the car. Excellent. Let's put on Weezer. Good Um, one. Yep. Of course. Yeah. And of course the songs that they're learning are leaning towards the blue album and Pinkerton. And then we kind of trade off or trade away. And so at some point we're in the car driving somewhere and we're listening to buddy Holly and like the kids are singing along and no other. And I say, well, do you guys know like buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore were real people Mm -hmm. mind blown. And, and then I'm telling them a little bit about buddy Holly in the like, well, he was uh, a hero of the Beatles and they wanted to sound like him. John Lennon actually wore his glasses on stage only when he saw Buddy Holly wearing them. The name the Beatles is a takeoff on the crickets and all this stuff. And they're, mm-hmm. 
they're humoring me and eating it up. Of course. And this sort of thing doesn't stick with them. Which finger Jerry cut, cut off by his brother when he was five. They had a huge fight over that, which I am, for some reason, incredibly proud of. Yes, but, you should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but every once in a while, I'll, we'll go back into the, oh, and remember Buddy Holly and crickets and this and that. And so a few weeks ago, we see my in-laws for the first time in forever. And my son talks with her for a bit and goes away and her and I start talking. She says, oh, he's really into music. I'm like, yeah, he's really enjoying the drums and doing all of this stuff. And she said like, oh, and he told me he's doing all these Weezer songs. And we talked a little about Buddy Holly. And I'm thinking, oh, because you told him about the glasses and the crickets and the song. And then she right. goes, and the crash. I'm like, excuse me, what? Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. No. So one thing I've been, I was thinking about today when I was doing some research on, on your work um, is that quote about that at the only thing that'll be left with American civilization at the end will be the Constitution, baseball, and jazz. But your study and your work sort of begins where jazz started and goes backwards, right? Because it started New Orleans 18-something or other, or yeah. said to start there. Yeah, but you have to remember um, that was a consequence of an academic amnesia. Um, everything is very well documented, 1865 forward. Um, even though the, the knowledge is compartmentalized, very compartmentalized, you know, which is a problem because when you don't have a holistic view and understanding of the music, you really don't understand the music until you understand the social, cultural, and political context in which the music mm -hmm. evolves. Because music is just a soundtrack for the life of people. So when you make an abstraction of the, the reality of the, the economic and political realities um, that engenders this music, you're really not understanding the music. You're just trying to figure out how do these sounds work together, but you but you don't have a you don't have a rooted sense of the evolutionary process of the music. And so when I, in my case, uh, I was teaching jazz history. Fortunately, I'm not just an academic because I've played with the jazz masters and so i have i had a completely different outlook than people in academia uh, most people would teach jazz history very often and uh, have not been in the field of jazz they've they wanted to teach something else the dean said oh why don't you teach this that'll be fun <laughs> uh, and and that's what happened so 1865 forward is fairly well documented but what troubled me 
it was what happened before and why why the amnesia mm-hmm. and that's really where I understood even my my own personal journey because i you know I was born in Paris, but I grew up in West Africa I grew up in the center of West Africa in a country called Mali. Mm-hmm. And Mali in medieval time was, you know, the second largest and probably most important empire of West Africa. Uh, in medieval times, the first empire of West Africa is called the Empire of Ghana. And it has nothing to do with the country of Ghana. It's located uh, right at the height of Senegal, in, between Senegal and Mali. And that empire lasts, uh, it begins somewhere around the 4th century until the 10th century. And then from the 10th century until the 14th century, you have that empire of Mali. That's a gold reserve of the world, that part of Africa at that time. Mm-hmm. And then from the 14th to the 17th century, you have the empire of Sorai, which grew concentrically from the empire of Mali. So what what that tells us is that between the 4th century and the 17th, 18th century, you have, a, you have a commonality of standard of aesthetics, meaning that these empires have laid out a foundation for culture, for civilization, for what, is, for what people consider great, for what people consider poor, uh, for, for the value of arts in societies, for the academic sense of societies. Tumbuktu is one of the major centers of civilization of Mali in the 12th, 13th century. Jene is an enormous capital of Mali before Tumbuktu even. Um, and so the reason why I, I sort of got mad was because I realized that there was a reason why nobody in academia was interested in talking about 1865 moving backwards. And, and what I understood is that the foundation of American culture, and particularly the foundation of its, of its music, is in Africa and in West Africa in particular. And the reason why rock and roll or rhythm and blues or, or rap or uh, jazz for that matter, the reason why the foundation, the reason why that music in America explodes uh, at the beginning of the 20th century is because for 350 years, these African populations who have been brought to the shores of the southern states of the United States have incubated these standards of aesthetics of West African culture, music included. And so here was the critical and paradoxical, the contradiction 
which was that it was a minority population because African-Americans today represent about 12% of the total population. I think they're about 31 million or so, something like that. So maybe even 11%. And yet it is that minority group who gave the majority population of European descent the only art form this country is known for and revered all over the world. Academia had a problem with the foundation of this art form, recognizing that it came from Africa. The, the reason, as I said, why our music in the United States is so different from the majority population's music, which is the music of Mozart and Beethoven, is because mm -hmm. its roots are not in Europe. Its roots are in Africa. And these are profound roots, powerful roots, and America's oldest melodic, harmonic, and even to some extent rhythmic instrument is an instrument from my country of Mali. The banjo, which is Nashville's flagship instrument, is from mm. my country. There isn't a single banjo in England, Ireland, or Scotland. Forget Germany. So, <laughs> and yet the, the, the majority ethnic population in the United States is of German descent. Well, that's what I was wondering. You were saying that the, the banjo is a West African instrument and that it was, you know, part of the music that was coming over here. What other instruments, what other sounds, if we were in West Africa, in you know anywhere from that what was it 16th to you know uh, 18th century what would those sounds sound like would it be something that we could hear and identify in some way as absolutely in mm -hmm. fact in fact you have a very i mean a celebrated ethnomusicologist of the highest order his name is Ry Cooder. Mm. and and Ry Cooder is a great guitar player a great blues and country music guitar player <laughs> He, uh, most, most Americans who listen to this music, to this music of the Delta, realize that, okay, <laughs> if you listen to Sunhouse or Booker White or uh, Holly Wolf, you know these guys are not expressing the music of Mozart Beethoven. So right. it's, com it's coming from Africa somewhere. Raikuda went to Timbuktu and he discovered a musician who, would be, who was playing on the banks of the Niger River for decades by the name of Ali Farka Touré. And Ali Farka Touré is playing the music of the Sohai people. And when Rai Kuda heard that music, he was like, whoa, now I understand where it comes from. Because the early, song, the early sounds of the blues the melodic systems, the harmonic systems that you hear in the music of Soundhouse, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the celebrated blues musician, Bonnie Raitt, she went to Mali. Uh, she knows about Soundhouse and Howling Wolf. She went to Mali and she, she understood just like Rai, this is where the music of the Delta comes from. Why? It's easy because, first of all, 
the banjo, which we call goni in Mali, in Malenke, which we call khalam in Wolof in Senegal. And most West Africans, you know, like me, speak two or three Afri West African languages. It's a mm -hmm. given. Um, we have the, the, that instrument, which in the United States becomes uh, the banjo, that's the instrument of the people. Everybody can make it. You know, it's two or three strings. It's a gourd and, and a fingerboard. And, and you play these tones. That classical music doesn't know how to script. Blue notes. <laughs> you know, we play lots of blue notes. And we like them. You know? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. And you know, which brings me to something else. Um, we, we have to understand the context. Europe, you know, Europe was the beneficiary of the civilizations, of the African civilizations. Why? Because most of the time when we talk, when, when we talk, we forget about chronology. The chronology of evolution of mankind. We know scientifically that the, what we call the Homo sapiens sapiens, the standing man, arrives in Africa 120,000 years before Christ. We have evidence of humanity 3 million years before Christ. And even five years ago, we found even older hominids 5 million years um, in, the, in the region further south of the, of the Lake Victoria, almost at the border of South Africa. So we know that the evolutionary process of humanity is from that part of Africa forward. 120,000 years before Christ, the standing man is there. We know that the oldest remains that we find in Europe are 40,000 years. That's a bit of Grimaldi. Well, we know that the Sphinx that looks east in Egypt is 10,000 years old before Christ. And we know that Europe, 8,000 years ago, was emerging from the Ice Age. Imagine the size of a civilization that built the Sphinx at a time when Europe is under the Ice Age. The pyramids of Gizeh are 3,000 years before Christ. So, of course, these populations create the instruments. They create the rules of harmony upon the, which the rest of the planet is going to build. It, it, it's just a chronology of innovation. It's just the law of chronology. It, it's not that they're smarter, or it's just that they were there first. Mm -hmm. And so... It's not an accident that all the instruments of Europe come out of Africa. They don't come out of anywhere else. Why? Because anybody who studies medieval history will tell you that the only musicians in Europe are the troubadours. 
if the troubadours are these brown population, black and brown populations will walk from villages to villages in Europe to animate the local dancers. They play those guitars, they play those banjos, they play these tonalities, these blue notes. Mm -hmm. Europe, there, there is a, a, we have to understand that there comes a time where the, the royalty of Europe decides to create a European space. And that means that a space outside of the invasion of Africans on the southern borders and away from the invasion of Asians on its eastern borders, the Huns. These, these are real threats. There comes a time where the kings of France because they really are the ones who are going to to cement this idea of a burgeoning European space, realize that music is an expression of cultural power. And in order to unite a group of people, you have to give them a music that is now going to be theirs. There is absolutely no reason why the blue notes have disappeared from the language of classical music unless it was done from a political agenda perspective. We hmm. know that the church has, has convened many conclaves to decide what to do with these tonalities. It's only in the, in the Christian religion that we hear of tones associated with the devil. Hmm. And interestingly enough, these are the tones that are called the blue notes. So there's an effort in Europe at one time <laughs> to remove these colors, these ethnic sound, these blue notes out of the circulation out of the European theater. Hmm. It's an effort because Europeans have understood that music is an expression of cultural power and they need to create their own music. That's and that's how Bach comes along. And, and let me say, just to give you a perspective on this concept, I asked my students, I said, okay, where does Christianity begin? So most of them say, oh, well, Christ was born in Israel, Palestine, in that area. I say, absolutely. Palestine, not Israel. Israel is 1948 creation. But Palestine, for sure. Kingdom of Jordan. I said, when, when you think about it, where, I mean, there's a book that I didn't write that said that these Jewish populations were in Egypt, in Africa, for 300 years. I said, if you go to Sunday school, they teach you that right away. And I've had conversations with rabbis, and they, they say, yeah, no, it's true. I said, okay, so if you were there for 300 years in Africa, what do you think you guys did at night in Africa, in the heat, for 300 years? You multiplied with Africans. Mm -hmm. because, because that's what humans do. Right. So 
So now you, you start thinking about that. You think about, as I said to them, where's the first Christian church? And they say, oh, it's in Rome. I said, no. The first Christian church, which still has a pope from whom the term pope comes from, which means leader in their language, is in Alexandria, Egypt. It's not in Rome. I said, let's let's go back so we can understand what academia, how academia confuses and creates a cloud. What do the Romans do to Christians for their own enjoyment downtown Rome? They build a stadium that they call the Coliseum to feed them to the lions. That's what they do. That's documented. We know it. And mm -hmm. nobody denies it. I said, so Christians were not going to Europe. Europeans were not interested in Christianity. That's why they fled to Africa. Egypt was still a very strong hold of cultural aspirations. <laughs> The first Christian church from which the cross, the symbol of the cross, which is an Egyptian symbol, which is an, what we call an aniconic symbol, <laughs> it's, in Egypt, it's in Egypt, it's in Africa. They going, these populations are going to flee even further south into the mountains of Ethiopia. They're going to move back out of these areas to move all the way to Turkey to create the second Christian church, which is called the Orthodox Church, which is the church that the Greeks and the Russians pray to. That's book number two. Christians are still not interested in Christianity. I mean, Europeans are still not interested in Christianity. And when they do, 900 years after the birth of Christ, they pick a clergyman that they move around. First, he's in the south of France in Avignon. It's well documented. He's trying to, he tries to tell the king of France what to do. The king of France kicks him out, sends him over to Germany. The dukes of Germany don't like him either because they realize that these guys after power, they send him to Switzerland, which is the reason why these funny-looking outfits of that are in charge, the funny-looking guys with their funny outfits in charge of the security of the Pope are mm -hmm. the Swiss guards. Then they move him to Rome. He creates mischief over there. The, Rome, the, the Roman mayors and so forth don't want to deal with him. They say, okay, we need to put him in a spot that's going to be his own spot. He can't come out unless he gets a visa. We can't go in there unless we get a visa. That's the Vatican. That's late. That's yeah. a small pope. But the reason why it makes sense for music is because when you listen to the early music of Christianity, the Gregorian chants, first of all, nobody chants in Europe at that time. But the Gregorian chants are written in 6 8. Mm -hmm. 6 8 is the is the center of African rhythms. 
that the polyrhythmic essence of swing. There isn't a single culture of polyrhythmic systems in Europe at that time. That means that this music, and when you listen to the Gregorian chants, you realize this is not the music of Bach and Beethoven, because those things are spooky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. You want to be scared. Yeah, you absolutely. You want to be scared. You turn off your lights, you put that music on, you'll be like, uh oh, I'm not scared. These these chants are the tradition of West African possession of the spirit. These things are not to play with. And you see the Roman church realizing that it needs to create its own music and that its own music cannot be those Gregorian chants anymore. First of all, those rhythms are too complicated and then these tonalities are too scary. And so they simplify it. They look for composers, they tell them what they want and the music of Bach becomes triads, one, three, and five. <laughs> And we move into a completely new era. But that was a political decision. That was a decision made as a response to, to this overwhelming presence of Africa, even in Europe. Because the Moors, these black populations from Northern Africa, were all over Spain and Portugal. That's why Spain, and they had the knowledge of Africa. That's why Spain becomes the first European superpower in medieval times. The term Moors comes from the Greeks. It means black. Now, I've had some flawed academics telling me that, well, uh, Moors could also include uh, white people with a tan. I said, <laughs> no, that's not true because the Greeks are whites with a tan. And they never call themselves more. But to push that further, and to show you how academia is dangerous, and I'm saying that as a member of academia, do you know in Senegal, in 1969, you guys in the US sent some people on the moon. They came to Senegal with some moon rocks. In fact, I was in I was in elementary school or middle school. I forgot. They gave us a day off. We were very happy. We had they they even handed us little flags, U.S. flags, and they said, "Okay, all the kids, you go out and you're going to wave at the limo." And on that limousine, there were three white males: Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong. I remember as if it was yesterday, and I think I was nine years old or something like that or seven. Do you know these three white males paraded up and down the main artery of Senegal? And we were there, we were clapping, we were, we couldn't believe it. We were like, wow, these guys are half gods. Do you know that it took 50 years to NASA for NASA to tell us that the only way these guys, these three guys went on that bus from Cape Canaveral to the moon and back was because an entire division of black women 
calculated the elliptical orbits at a time when computers were not even trustworthy. An entire division of black women Mm -hmm. led by an African-American PhD in mathematics by the name of Katherine Johnson. It took 50 years. I said, that's criminal. They go in academia, they go around saying, oh, these poor black kids and uh, brown kids, they, they don't, they're not good in mathematics. Oh my God, we need to get a STEM program. They can't calculate nothing. Do you know the impact it would have had had they shown all these women, these black women saying, these are the people who are responsible for sending these guys back to the moon and back? No. So this is the reason why it's important to understand the, the academic context is because it gives you a window into the ability of a majority society to cover up the contribution of a minority community and this is what this is under that particular umbrella that jazz emerges it emerges out of oppression out of academic lies that's why even in the literature today the first king of jazz is paul whiteman the first king of swing is benny goodman when Ellington and Count Basie are out there creating it. And then the first king of rock and roll is Elvis. Mm -hmm. And they were going to make kings of soul music. They called it disco. You know, they went and recruited those three Australian kids, blue, blonde, blue eyes, who really wanted to sing country music. They said, no, you're going to do this. We're going to put a movie together called uh, Saturday Night Fever. They found the worst dancer in America. They put him in the center. Uh, you know, John Travolta can dance. My God, you know, there was, a, I mean, in America, you had a show called Soul Train. Those guys were amazing dancers. They went and got John Travolta. <laughs> you know, and to, they put him in the, in the middle and they say, this is how people dance in America. I was like, no, that's not. But these kids, these three blonde kids from Australia was the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. You know, and you have a replication of these systems where the majority looks at what the minority population is doing, when he likes it, it just takes it over. And so you have this constant, constant tug of war and friction that has a, a very deep historical root into oppression of these populations from West Africa, you know? And so that's the climate in which, you know, music evolves. <laughs> no, that was wonderful. And, and thank you so much. I feel like all of your work, either musically or with your studies is just bringing all of this information to light and, and sharing it with people and, Thank you so much for your for your time and for sharing it with us. This was super fascinating. And I I love having these conversations where at the end of it, I'm just like, my mind is blown on why am I learning this stuff now? Or why am I only learning this now? So this is 
younger. Yeah. No, you're right about that. Younger is what's so important. Younger. Yeah. Because if we all have respect for one another and we start young, then we can collectively give this nation, put this nation on the right path. Yeah. You know, but when we learn it, when we function from an absence of knowledge, there's nothing worse. I, uh, yeah, no, I, I got to go sit down and think about this for a while and, and, you know, maybe put on kind of blue and think about it. So hey, you, you, <laughs> that's, that's a great record. You can't go wrong with kind of blue. For more information about Dr. Bokar, his book and his band, check out his website, afrobluegrasspascalbokar.com. You can follow us on all the various socials. You can check out our website at rockandrollgradschool.com for more grad school content. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We're tired of asking our family members to do so. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sobe and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mastonen. This one's for Philippe. Thank you, good night, and may all your favorite bands stay together.